This is Revive Chicago. Listen and be changed. And I've been in the Old Testament quite a bit lately. So uh, I preached a little two-part series on King Hezekiah a couple weeks ago. And then um, God has me like right back in almost the same storyline. So uh, Hezekiah is chapter 18 of 2 Kings. And we're going to be reading the story just prior to that uh, in chapter 17. And we'll start out in uh, chapter 17, verse 7, if you want to turn there. And I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory. And I've been doing this, but I know sometimes you need repetition and reminders of because you're trying to keep track of all these different kings and all these different Old Testament names. And there's Hosea and Hosea and there's Jehoshaphat and, and Hezekiah and all these names that you're like, I don't know if I can pronounce all of these, right? And there's going to be some in here uh, today that I'll probably butcher as I try to pronounce them later on. But a little backstory, and just as a reminder, right? Because I talked about it a couple weeks ago. But at this point in time, what we think of as one nation, Israel, had actually split and become two. So there was the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. And Judah wasn't just Judah. Judah was comprised of the half-tribe of Benjamin. So half the tribe of Benjamin stayed with Israel. Half the tribe of Benjamin went with Judah. And then there was the Levites. And the Levites didn't have any allotted land. They were just called to serve in the temple. And they were supported by their ministry in the temple. So Judah remained not faithful to God, but they actually had faithfulness at times. So when you go and you read the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, they switch back and forth between Israel and Judah based on the chronological order. So like the time period that they reigned in. So sometimes there's overlap between the two kings. And so it would say, during the reign of so-and-so, this guy reigned in Judah. And then during the time of this king in Judah, this king in Israel reigned. And they kind of, it goes back and forth between Israel and Judah. And that's why it flip-flops. And so if you go back a little further in time, everybody's kind of familiar with King David, right? So King David united the kingdom, united all, ten, or all 12 tribes. And then uh, his son Solomon kept the kingdom united. It was very prosperous. And Jeremiah, or Jeremiah, Solomon, see there's the Old Testament names getting us mixed up. Uh, then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was too harsh and caused the kingdom to split. And when the kingdom split, that's when it turned into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Okay? So, King Hezekiah was a righteous king, and he reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah. We're going to talk today a little bit more about the northern kingdom of Israel and some of the transition, because they never had a righteous king. Judah would have one righteous king, and then a wicked king, and then two righteous kings, and then two wicked kings. And it was like, it's not a true pattern, but just, it never stuck. So there were several righteous kings in Judah that followed God, that tried to clean up the town, kick out the foreign gods, and live according to the law. Israel didn't even try. And so after a certain amount of time, God sent his prophets and said, you're about to be judged. You haven't been following me. You haven't been listening. So I'm sending judgment upon you. And Assyria came and attacked the northern kingdom of Samaria. It was also called Samaria. That's where it gets confusing sometimes. So it's the 10 northern tribes of Israel, but the Bible refers to them as Samaria. The uh, corresponding archaeological evidence refers to it as Samaria. It was known at the time as Samaria. 
And then um, it was even sometimes called Ephraim, which was one of the 10 tribes, okay? So don't, don't get confused when you're going there reading it. That'll give you a, that's a little history lesson and help. But anyway, God sent judgment on the northern tribes of Israel. So, so far Judah hasn't been touched, okay? And Assyria is God's tool, God's weapon, so to speak, to, to bring about that judgment. And it took Assyria three years. They laid sage to one of the major cities in Samaria. And they just encamped around it for three years. Until most of the people starved to death. And then they went in and attacked and took the city. It was so bad, mothers were eating their own children. Like, I cannot even fathom being that hungry. And <clears throat> this was kind of normal. This is the type of thing that Assyria did to different people groups. And <clears throat> so we're going to start in verse 7 and find out why Israel was being judged. Because they were supposed to be God's people following Yahweh, right? Uh, Yahweh is another term uh, or God's official Hebrew name, I guess you could say. Um, anyway, Chapter 17, verse 7 of 2 Kings, it says this. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. And so this is, kind of, this is setting it up. So I gave you a little bit of the history, and now we're jumping into it. But what's happening? Is the, the author of Kings is telling us the story, right? And all, why did all this take place? Why did Assyria attack? Why did God allow Assyria to attack? Why didn't God protect his people? Like God's, God's supposed to protect his people. Why isn't he protecting them? Because they're not living like his people for generation after generation after generation. They're following and worshiping other gods. God's like, how can I treat you like my people when you don't act like my people? When you don't even call me God, you don't serve me, or you want to serve me and serve other gods at the same time. And so <clears throat> we'll jump back into it here. Uh, verse nine, the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in, in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers. <coughs> Excuse me. They rejected his decree, oh, sorry, as their fathers and who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did things the Lord had forbidden them to do. 
So there's a couple lines in here that really stick out to me. Is It talks about all of the different ways that Israel had specifically not followed God, had not followed the law of God. And you can almost think of this as um, a, a, a judicial situation. Like a lawyer, like think of the prophet as a lawyer bringing the application, or the the accusation, (laughs) wrong word there, bringing the accusation and saying, this is what's happening. And you've been warned and you've been warned and you've been warned. Now you're going to jail, (laughs) right? Like that's kind of, that's what's happening. And God has sent warning after warning after warning. Change your ways. Stop doing those things. I forbade you to do those. I said, don't act like the other nations. Why? Because if you act like the other nations, God has to treat you like the other nations. And they rejected the covenant. So think of the prophets as like covenant lawyer coming and prosecuting and saying, you didn't keep your end of the bargain. You didn't do what you said you would do. And most of us today are so far separated from covenants, right? Like we don't, we, maybe people make the covenant of marriage, but they don't really even know what that means. And most of us think in terms of like a contract. So the closest we could come is like in our modern terms would be a contract where you sign the dotted line and you said you're going to pay your mortgage by X date or you're going to buy this business and you've got the funding and da-da-da. And and there's a contract that tells you what you have to do and how you're going to keep it or we're going to bring a lawsuit against you. If you don't keep your side of the bargain, we're going to bring a lawsuit against you. If you don't keep your side of the bargain, we're going to come foreclose on your house. Stuff like that. But a covenant is even deeper, bigger than a contract. A covenant makes you family. That's what a covenant was in biblical times. And so the closest iteration we have of that in modern times is the covenant of marriage, right? Which most people still treat as like a contract or something. They're like, well, I can get out of it. I just got to sign some papers and get out of this contract. But when you sign something, so to speak, In the Bible times, when you make a covenant, it was like payable on death. (laughs) It's like, if you don't keep your side of this, if you don't keep, like, you're not acting like your family. You're rejecting the terms that we agreed upon. And God said, I'm going to rescue you. Remember, they're going all the way back to Egypt. They mentioned Egypt, right? So God's going all the way back to Egypt. And he's like, I rescued you. I promised you I would be your protector. I promised you that I would keep you safe. I promised you that I would deliver you from the land of Egypt and bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. I promised you all of these things. And all I asked for in return is that you serve me and you reject the other gods. And they couldn't do it. And decade after decade, century after century, they rejected God over and over again. And notice this other line. This one really stuck out to me. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. You are what you worship. You become what you worship. And so if you have something else that's not God, that doesn't bring value, then you slowly become that, right? And God calls them, he doesn't care if they're made out of gold. Still worthless. It's not. It's lifeless. It can't do anything. It can't. It can't bring the rain like they thought it could bring the rain. It can't bring fertility and children like they thought it could bring fertility and children. It can't do any of it. It has no power. But they were worshiping something with no power, and becoming like it. We often 
Even today, nobody, I'm pretty sure nobody in here was bowing down to a little gold Buddha or something this last week. And you probably weren't even tempted. Like, of all the temptations that you struggle with, I bet that's not one. Right? Like, the most you've ever done is you walked into, like, an Asian restaurant or something, and you patted his belly or something as you walked through, and you're like, hey, you know, that's the closest you've come to an idol. Some of you are like, that's a good idea. <laughs> but since that's not our temptation, we've got to put it in terms that we're used to. What's, what's the worthless idols that we kind of bow down to? And there's many. But I feel like we have to kind of name them a little bit and recognize them. Or you're just, you, you think to yourself like, well, I'm not bowing down in a shrine. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. So I'm good. But we let in these things that have control over us and affect us. Because we've made ourselves worthless. We've worshipped these worthless things. And in so doing, we've devalued ourselves. We've devalued ourselves. And <clears throat> there was like an analogy I came across a while back, and you've probably seen it on, on social media. <laughs> but it talked about uh, this dad and his daughter were cleaning out an old shed on his parents' property. And they whipped the cover off of this old car. And <clears throat> he told his daughter, he said, you know, why don't you go see what this is worth? And so she took it, she took it to a little pawn shop. And the guy was like, ah, I'll, give you, I'll give you two grand for it. And she was like, okay. She went back to her dad and he was like, nah. She's like, where are you? And he's like, take it somewhere else. So she took it to a car dealership. I said, well, I think we could do something with this. I'll give you 10 grand for it. So she went back to her dad. And I was like, nah. So she went and found like a special, like imported car dealer, antique dealer of cars. She brought it to this guy. And he looked at it, his eyes got big. He's like, I'll give you $200,000 for this car right now. So she went back to her dad, and he was like, yeah, <laughs> that's where you should have gone in the first place. And he told her, he said, you need to be careful who you let value you and set a price. Most people are looking for value in all the wrong places. They have a low value of themselves. They have low self-esteem, and they don't believe what God says. God says, you're so valuable, I'm going to send my son to die in your place. But the world, most of us, we struggle because the world has assigned us a value. Or we've been told all our life, you're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. You'll never become anything. You can't do it. You're good for nothing. You're stupid. Da, da, da. All the things that the world speaks, that sometimes parents in their anger say, that teachers say, that mean the, the bullies and everybody else, the things that were spoken over you, and you let the pawn shop dealer say your value, instead of the God of the universe who created you and paid a price, the highest price. And so if you don't value yourself based on what God says, then you go seeking validation from other things. And that's what the children of Israel were doing. They were going and seeking value from a worthless idol, a piece of stone, a piece of metal, a, 
a wood statue. And they were trying to get their value from that. They were trying to get their, their fertility going. They were trying to get the crops to grow. They were trying to get the rain to fall. And they were going to some worthless thing and saying, tell me my value. Give me what I need. And they would, they would try to manipulate those gods. Like that, if you look at how they did it, it's like, I'll give you this sacrifice. You give me some rain. And God had a sacrificial setup too, but it wasn't to manipulate. It was for relationship based on the covenant that was set up. You can't manipulate the real God, Yahweh. That's how you kind of know the difference. When you look at all the false, false gods out there, all the false religions, it's like most of these gods, most of these religions, you can manipulate. You can't manipulate God. We just got done doing an offering message. Nothing in there about manipulation. God wants to bless. That's who he is. That's in his character. And so when it says they followed worthless idols and they, they themselves became worthless, it was because they did it. They devalued themselves. They debased themselves. They let the pawn shop dealer tell them what they were worth. They let a worthless idol tell them what they were worth, what they could have, what they couldn't have. Instead of going to the creator who said, I value you. He said, Israel, you're the apple of my eye. That's crazy. And we read this and we're like, why would you do that? You idiots. Like, why would you do that? You know better. God gave you the law. God told you what to do. God showed you the way. And then we look at our own lives. We look at our own temptations. And let's call out some of the modern false gods. Power. Having a position of power to tell other people what to do? How many of you have dealt with managers at work who are on a power trip? <laughs> I like that reaction. How many of you have seen television footage of politicians who were on a power trip? That's another God, politics. People get really into politics and it becomes an idol. It's a way to get control. And in our nation, it's red and blue, duking it out, each trying to get power. Substances. That's one of the gods today. Alcohol, weed, drugs, pharm ph big pharma. Right? They're constantly, every, you can't turn on a TV without seeing a big pharma commercial. Entertainment. It's one of the gods of today. And we all tell ourselves how much entertainment we get. It's like, well, it's not that big deal. Youth and beauty. It's a big idol today. Comfort. People work just to be able to relax. I earned this. I deserve this. Family. And not like family and the, there's obviously a lot of benefits and positives about family. But I think the way it becomes an idol is people think, oh, if I just had a wife, oh, if I just had a husband, oh, if I just had, and it becomes an idol that they think will fulfill their happiness. But that's not going to fulfill, like, family's rough sometimes. 
It's not perfect because we're all imperfect people, <laughs> right? Like just because you get a family doesn't mean, oh, you're just going to magically be happy now. In fact, you're probably going to have a little bit more problems. But that's not the way you think about it. When you start to feel lonely, when you start to feel disconnected, it can become an idol that that's changing how you think, how you act. Religion. Religion can become an idol. Just because you're following Christianity doesn't mean you know Jesus. You have to trust God, not trust religion. Because if you're only trusting religion, it can become an idol. It can get twisted. And so suddenly you're just following the traditions of man. Another idol today is science. Trust the science. Money. Money is a huge idol today. I think it's one of the best reasons to do an offering message every week. It's because you're pointing out the most major idol that everybody in America struggles with and calling it out. Sex and lust, it's a huge idol today. A lot of people don't realize that the pornography industry makes more than the MLB and the NFL combined. That's huge. It runs, it, it runs deep. It goes deep. Fear. Fear is an idol. You're like, well, I'm a person of faith. But then you make actions based on your fears. And those fears control you and tell you what to do. Tell you where to go. Tell you how to spend your money. Social media has become a huge idol. People give hours and hours and hours every week to that. Status. Status is a huge idol. People want to be looked at. It kind of goes hand in hand with power. But it's a little different in our social media age because it doesn't always come with power. It's just like, I want, I want those likes. I want those, I want those share buttons clicked. I want... Lots of hearts. And so it just becomes this status thing. And probably the biggest of all, and probably the root of all of these, if you could, could summarize all of these different idols I just named, they come back to self, the God of self. Every one of these idols that I just named all put self first. And this is where it's deceiving because you don't think of that as an idol. You're like, well, I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal. I'm not trying to get anybody to worship me. But where self becomes an idol is anything that comes between you and God. And if you are protecting yourself, thank you, I will take a sip of that. And I'll just make you all watch me. When you put yourself first, see, that was a selfless act, Sean. Thank you. When you put yourself first, all of these things get brought into existence. And it's weird because you're trying to promote yourself, but you're actually devaluing yourself. Because you're trying to, devalu you're trying to derive value from all of those other things. You're trying to derive value through money. And how much of it you have. 
You're trying to derive your value based on your comforts and your, oh, I went on this vacation, I went and did this, I went and did that. You're trying to derive your value. There's a lot of people trying to derive their value from the science right now. And they're trying to use that to manipulate other people. They're deriving their value based on their youth and their beauty. And it becomes their identity. And they struggle because that, I mean, it's going to fade, guys, for all of us. No matter how good you look right now. And I got a good looking church. No matter how good you look right now, it's fading. Beauty fades. This is life. And so if you've gotten your, if you've gotten your internal value from that, you're going to have a struggle. Later, an identity crisis later on in life. All of these gods come back to self and pride. And that's what the children of Israel were struggling with. And so we look at them and we're like, well, I'm not bowing down to a physical idol, but you're bowing down to all of these. Or some of these. You're giving them your worship. And they take over your thoughts. And they push you around and they manipulate you. And they get you to try and manipulate them. Well, if I just do this, if I just do that, I'll get the more money. And we're actually in the same pattern that the Israelites were in. It just looks different in our day. But the same root cause has always been there. Right? What was the root cause all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve? Pride and self. What's the reason the enemy got kicked out of heaven? Pride. He thought he was greater than God. He thought he knew more than God. So let's get back to reading here a little bit. But keep that verse in mind. If you follow worthless idols, you yourself become worthless. Does it mean you're actually worthless? No, God has a value for you. But if you're not seeking him first and getting your value from him and who he says you are, you are making yourself worthless in your own eyes. And then what's your natural inclination? To try and rescue yourself, save yourself. Got news for you. You can't. That's why Jesus came. He came to rescue you because you can't. He came to save you from your selfishness and pride because you can't, because I can't. We needed a savior. Israel needed a savior. They point us to Jesus. Every story you read, you're like, wow, oh, that, that makes me think of Jesus. It's crazy. Let's jump down to verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and he removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. Now his presence in the Old Testament mind was usually centered on the temple and God existing in kind of space-time at a certain location. But now as believers under the new covenant, his presence looks a little different because we always have access to Jesus. He said, I will be with you always. Even to the end of the age, God's presence is everywhere. But if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably felt moments where he felt closer. 
and you've sensed that manifest presence of God. And you're like, whew, this is amazing. And it made you want to sing louder. It made you want to bow down. It made you want to jump up and down. It made you want to lift your hands. It made, like you experience God's presence and it's euphoric. It's powerful. It's life-changing. And as believers, we're supposed to live in that constantly. And the pattern, going back to the Old Testament, is God removed them from his presence. Now, today, God withdraws that presence when you start to walk out from under it. He's not going to thrust you out of the garden like Adam and Eve. He's not going to thrust you out of his presence like he did Israel. He's going to withdraw from you because he's an umbrella. He's a covering. He's a protection. But it's, it's this weird thing where like, yeah, he's kind of withdrawing from you, but it's actually you walking out from under that umbrella and then getting mad because you're getting wet. It's like, I can't help you. I can't protect you. If you don't trust me, if you don't rely on me, if you don't seek me first, then how can I add all these things? Our job as believers is to seek first the kingdom of God and all, like, and all things will be added. When you seek him first, that's what happens. Israel here did not seek the Lord first. And the punishment was disconnection from the presence of the Lord. Let's jump to verse 24. So the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharaphim. I think I got that right. And settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. So Israel, I just explained to you how Israel got conquered by Assyria. Assyria came and deported them. And then they brought other people into their spot to settle the land and the town. Take over the crops and the farming and whatever else. So they took over Samaria and they lived in its towns. Then let's jump down to, I just know I'm going to bog you all down if we read this whole, it's a long chapter. So I'm, I, I tried to like, okay, we're going to skip certain parts here just so we don't get bogged down. <clears throat> so verse 29. Nevertheless, each of these national groups made its own gods in the, in the several towns where they settled. And they set them up in the shrines. And the people of Samaria, uh, the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The men from Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, and the men from uh, Kutha made Nergal, and the men from Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. That's a weird name for a god. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adrimelech and Animelech, the gods of the Zephyrfame. They worshipped the Lord, but they also worshipped all sorts of their own, uh, all sorts of their own, how did Sorry. They worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. So you see this transition. It used to just be the children of Israel. The children of Israel were supposedly worshiping Yahweh and all these other gods. And then the people that get exported to Israel, come and settle in the towns, and they bring all their gods with them. And then they worship Yahweh and those other gods. It's not exclusive in their mind. Today we're used to, especially here in America, we're used to monotheism. 
We're used to there being one God. It makes sense to us because that's our culture. So very, uh, very few people, unless they're Hindu, usually, don't believe in a multiplicity of gods. We're used to there being God, Jesus. Uh, we're familiar kind of with Allah and the Islamic religion. And those are the three major faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so monotheism makes sense to us. One God. But you go back to this time period, and they believed in however many gods could rescue them. So they had a God for fertility. They had a God for rain. They had a God for crops to grow. They had a God for every, like everything. And they worshiped all of these gods. And so then they move into this town. They move into this city. They move into Israel. And they're like, oh, Yahweh? Okay, we'll add him too. And it made sense to them. But the writer of Kings is pointing out that they're serving God and something else. And this is the temptation for Christians, but we don't put words on it. We don't put a name on it because we don't think we're worshiping idols. And so you're listening to me a little bit and you're like, well, you're kind of going overblown here a little because none of us are worshiping idols. None of us, we're all here worshiping. Didn't we just get done singing songs to Jesus? But here's the catch, guys, is the struggle that they had was they just added Yahweh to their other gods. He wasn't first. He was just one of the gods. If I need you for this, I'll sacrifice to you and you'll take care of me. And we come to church on Sunday and we put Jesus first and we proclaim the name of Jesus and we sing how we love him. And then we go home and we serve the gods of self. The God of pride, the God of money, the God of sex. And so we're actually not just serving Jesus, we're serving Jesus and. It's not just Jesus that has our bow. It's all these other things. And for each one in this room, it's probably a little bit different. Your temptation is a little bit different. The things that catch you up, the things that you don't notice that you've been bowing to is different for each one of us. And so the main thrust of this message today is what, are you, what has your bow? Is it just Christ alone? Or have other things crept in and you didn't realize? And you've told yourself it's okay, or it's not that big a deal, it's not out of control, or whatever. But it's actually, if you're being honest with yourself, it's controlling your thoughts. It's driving your actions. It's driving how you talk to other people. How defensive you get about yourself. It creates projection and you got to do things to show your status, to show your money, to show whatever it is. I think it's valuable in this day and age to ask yourself, why are you posting what you're posting? To get a like? Because you got something to say. Are you just trying to get validation from other people because you need it? That becomes a guy. It gets your bow because it becomes an addictive thing. And you see tons of people, like maybe it's, maybe it's not your thing, but you see tons of people today that are addicted to those hearts. And they need that validation and they need that constant validation. Are you addicted to power? Are you addicted to politics? Are you addicted to entertainment? Are you addicted to youth and beauty? Are you addicted to comfort? Does it have your bow? Because if you're addicted to comfort, then you're going to have a difficult time serving Jesus. Because he says, follow me and it will cost you everything. Everything. 
And all of those things that we thought gave us value, all of those things that we wanted, all of that validation that we wanted, causes us to devalue ourselves. You can't serve God and. He alone gets your bow. You've got to make up your mind. I will, I will not bow to these things. You've got to recognize them for what they are. And maybe there's something on this list. I just named the list of modern gods. Like, this isn't anything out of the Bible. I just, I made it up. But you can see where they have their roots. And they're all, all through Scripture, right? Like, obviously, Paul wasn't having to coach the churches on their social media use. You've been on Netflix too much, Corinth. Right? It's not happy. That's not what they had to address. But they still had to address the same root causes. Desire for comfort. Desire for validation. Desire for status and power. Desire for more money. Desire for sex. That's, that's one of the big ones that they deal with in Corinth. You can't worship God and he alone should have your bow. And you've got to be able to notice if you're bowing to other things. Because these things creep in. That's what happened to Israel, guys, is it crept in. We look at, it crept in, I don't know what I said. It crept in over time, slowly, generation by generation, to where it became normal. And there's a lot of things in our day that have become normalized that are not okay. And it's because we've just slowly moved the goalpost. We said, well, a little bit's okay. And we live like that for a little while. And we're like, oh, a little bit, it's okay. And it goes further and further and further. And pretty soon, you're not just bowing to God. Jesus isn't first in your life. He's third, fourth. He's the leftover thought. Like, oh, yeah, it's Sunday. I better go to church. It's not pre-planned. It's not preset. And you have to have systems in place. You have to have somebody preaching at you. You have to have things that help you recognize the areas in your life that you've brought in an and. You've bowed to something else that's not Jesus. And it's affecting your life. It's, ro it's robbing you of your joy. It's robbing you of your ability to actually worship him. Because it blinds you. When, you. when you've got the God of self, it's blinding. You can't see it. And it leads to bitterness. It leads to anger. It leads to unbelief. It leads to doubt. It leads to unforgiveness. Verse 34. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees, ordinances, laws, and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So if you start to bow, like maybe you still have kind of a Christian life and you go to church, but if you bow to those other things, it gets worse in the second generation. And it gets really bad by the third generation. It starts to slip. And so maybe you're doing just enough to get to heaven, so to speak. Doing just enough as if it's something earned. But the household that you create, the culture that you create of bowing here, bowing there as it fits your needs, it causes that generational slippage. 
Because God is a merciful God. He didn't just come in swooping with this massive judgment after one family and one generation couldn't worship or got caught up with idols. He gave generation after generation, chance after chance, prophet after prophet, over and over again to warn them and say, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And many times for us, we hear a sermon like this, and then you start to micromanage every little thing in your mind. God's mad at me. God's going to judge me. God's going to smite me. God's going to... And God didn't even do that to them. He gave them warnings over and over and over again. And it's up to you to heed the warnings. A message like this. This message isn't God's judgment is hanging over your head because you messed up this week and you, tried, you were trying to seek money. This message is God is merciful. This is an opportunity for you to right the ship. For you to choose. I will never bow to anything else. God alone gets my bow. It's like the prophets of old. Somebody's sending a warning and you get to choose what you're going to do with it. Right? And this isn't going to be your last warning. I'll probably preach a sermon kind of like this again. Right? That's what God does. That's how God brings the word. That's how God brings correction. It's so that you can line back up. Because we tend, what's, what's that old famous song? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're all prone to wander. You have to choose. You have to purpose in your life to protect your life from other gods. From slipping in certain areas. Maybe there's areas in your life that you just need to be a little bit more legalistic, so to speak. But you can't put that legalism on somebody else. Maybe, maybe this is a season in your life where you've got to kind of clean up your finances and you've been spending too much money or you've been saving too much money and not actually trusting God. And God's asking you to do something with it. And so for the next three to six months, you need to make sure that that does not have your bow, that money's not taking over and controlling everything. But you don't get to sit there and because somebody else who has more than you are spending, and you assume, oh, wow, they got the idol of money over there. They got too much of it. Legalism is legalism when you're putting your rules on somebody else. But when God brings something to your attention and God corrects something in your life, that's not legalism. That's the Holy Spirit. And you take that and you be kind of legalistic about it because you've got to obey. You've got to do what he's saying to do. But it's not legalism for you if the Holy Spirit is prompting you. And if the Holy Spirit is prompting you, he's going to give you, give you the ability to carry it out. He's not telling you for no reason. And if you root out that idol, if you deal with that idol, I promise you, life will get better. Your relationship with God will be so much more close. Your connection with him. You cannot serve God and. You can't bow your knee to multiple gods. You have to make up your mind. Who has your bow? Where did I leave off? Verse 35. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them. Serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him 
you shall bow down, and to him offer sacrifices. Think of this like in, as an analogy with marriage, right? What do you, you stand at the altar and you say, I do, I do. What are you saying? Nobody else gets my body. When you make that covenant, that's what you're promising. No one else gets to share finances. No one else gets to share a bed. That's what, that's what that covenant is. And so when Israel broke that covenant, it's similar. That's how it felt for God. So we made a covenant. You're not keeping your end of the bargain. You must always be careful to keep the decrees, ordinances, laws, and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I made with you. So redundant. I feel like that as a parent a lot of times. Do not do this. Ten seconds later. I said don't do that. Ten seconds later. This is your third warning, child. (laughs) Okay. But we're the same way. We're just like slightly... We have, we're not like goldfish. Like my kids are like, they have that seven second attention span. And then they, oh yeah, you said that. Right? But like, we have a little bit longer attention span. And so God says, don't do something. And then a week later, we forget a week later, but we forgot that we were told. But in our mind, we're doing good. Because we didn't mess up that day. Do not forget the covenant I made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. But they would not listen. However, they persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Think of that, guys. As believers, as Christians, you had things that you used to practice. Ways of thinking, idols you used to bow down to, ways that you used to try and get good karma from the universe, crystals that you prayed to or light, lit candles with. I don't know what all people do. But like, they've got all these crazy ideas and notions and ways of thinking and like former practices. There's ways that you used to think and act that you don't get to do anymore. You made a covenant with God. You got to get rid of them. Some of them you already see as silly. And some of them, you haven't gotten rid of the former practices. You haven't stopped anything. You think it's normal. And God's saying, no, worship me alone. I alone should have your bow. That's what Yahweh says. And then we look around and we're like, what's the difference between the average Christian and the average non-Christian? Like if you looked at how Christians live their life, what's the difference? Maybe they go to church on Sunday. Oh, what a sacrifice. A whole hour. I mean, if you come here, it's going to be too. (laughs) I'm kind of long-winded. But think about that. Like how much difference is, like, are they bowing to different things? I think the average Christian is bowing to the exact same things as the average American. They haven't changed anything. They gave their life to Jesus because they didn't want to burn in hell. And then they just don't get rid of any of their former practices. 
Church, that can't be us. There's things in your life you've got to stop. There's things in your life you've got to look back on and say, I don't get to do that anymore. I don't get to live like that anymore. I don't get to think that way anymore. I've got a new way of thinking. I've got a new set of beliefs. And I only bow to one. I only get my value from one. I don't let other people validate me. I don't need other, rather, you can let other people validate, like obviously in a church context. So what I mean is that inner need for validation that drives you and pushes you around. Right, like if I, um, just to use an example even for myself, like if I needed, if I needed validation from you as a preacher, this is not the message I would choose. Like there's new people in the room. Like I want you to like me, right? But if I need that validation, then that drives me and drives the message and it changes the church. I can't let that happen. I have, to, I have to do this, guys. I have to look at my life and set things in place so that I don't, let my, I don't bow to anything else. I don't need validation from other people. Because otherwise I'll get pushed around by that and I'll be controlled by that and maybe even unknowing. And I'm certain there's been times where I've, because we all have those human struggles, right? I'm certain there have been times where I have let someone's opinion drive me too much or validate me too much. Right? This isn't, this isn't a, hey, you guys, this is a, let's do this. Let's make sure we're only bowing to God. That he alone has your bow. That's it. He's the only one that gets to validate you. He's the only one that elevates your status. Guess what? Abraham became great, like I talked about in the offering message. Abraham became great. Why? Because God made him great. If you need validation from other people, you're trying to make yourself great. You're trying to do it. You're trying to self-promote. You can't do that. You've got to let him alone be the one that values you. And you'll realize how valuable you really are. You ever think about that? All the people struggling with validation and self-value and self-worth? If they actually just let God value them, they would be so much more valuable and that struggle would go away. That struggle would completely vanish. So today, as we close, I think, I think the Holy Spirit's already been working on you and I think the Holy Spirit's already been bringing things to light in your own mind and heart. Things that have had your bow that shouldn't, that have told you what to do, who to be, where to go, how to spend your money that shouldn't. They shouldn't be in that position in your life. And so what I'd like to do as we close here is um, there's a song Dustin Smith did a few years back that I was like getting ready for this message and I was like, okay, that's, that's the song we need to do. And it's literally called Never Bow. <laughs> and it's a longer song, but I think there's going to be something the Holy Spirit does. So I, I want to invite us all up here to the altar and just stand together. If you're new and it's uncomfortable for you, don't feel like, don't feel like you have to, but I think it could be a really powerful moment for you. And you're, you're not going to know the song um, if, if you're new. Some of the people in here will know the song and can sing along. But if you're new, the perspective, don't sit there singing like you have to know, thinking you have to know it or try to sing along. Let the words sing over you. Kind of like you're sitting here now and I'm preaching to you and my words are 
they're kind of going over you and it's affecting what you're thinking. It's like directing your mindset a little bit, hopefully in a positive way. But like, I'd like you to take that perspective on the song. So if you know the song, sing along. But if you don't know the song, don't just kind of get lost or frustrated that you don't know it. Let the words wash over you. And a lot of the words will actually re- reiterate my message. <laughs> it was uncanny. Because I, like, I turn on worship music while I'm preparing and all that. And it just like came, th- came through on my Spotify list. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, the, that's our song. <laughs> so um, we can go ahead and stand. And um, we'll push the first row back or something. So we just have a little bit more room, a little more space up here. And then I'd like you to just come on up here. And we'll, we'll let this song sing over us and really get that. I will never bow deep in my spirit, man. You can go ahead and start playing it, Sean. And we're going to proclaim this into the airwaves. And as you, maybe you'll pick up on a couple of the lines. Feel free to jump in and sing. I have faith Tom, you might beyond hit what I can see. When doubts and fears arise inside of me. At times my heart grows weary from the fight. But I have peace that overwhelms my night. Cause I've seen the mountains move with just a word of truth. So I know it's possible to live unstoppable. So toss me to the raging sea or throw me in the fire. Lower me into a den with lions all around. Cause greater is the one in me than what my eyes can see I know the enemy screams loud but I will never bow thank you Jesus we proclaim today that you alone have our bow we're not going to bow to anything else we will never bow to anything else you alone get our worship you alone get our sacrifice you alone get our thought life you alone get our money our finances you alone Jesus all of it is for you you're first you're foremost we're not trying to get it from anyone else or anywhere else Jesus you alone you alone have our bow Thank you for it, Jesus. Would you just repeat this after me and say, Jesus, my life is yours. Everything I am, everything I have, it's yours. You alone have my bow. You alone have my worship. And to you alone, I give my life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening today. Now it's time to put your faith into action by applying this word to your life. If you'd like help taking your next steps with Jesus, contact us at revivechicago.church.